Well, one one decent one actually. Although I guess it is later in the show notes, but it like has dominated my life. It's like figuring out how to get any exercise when I'm stuck inside all the time. I'm sitting here looking out at the rain, and it is so depressing because yesterday was really nice out, and it's the only day that it was nice enough to exercise. Yeah, no, it was it was beautiful yesterday, and I know your struggle. I actually recently just downloaded an app that I learned about through uh, CPG Gray was the Fitbot app. Oh yeah, he's all about that. Yeah yeah is it good and well i haven't really used it yet and i need to explore it more but it will customize a workout to what equipment you have available so if you say i have nothing i just have an open space and these are the body parts i want to work it will generate a bunch of exercises that you could do so that may be a route you could take but i agree it's been a struggle it's hard i'm mostly taking walks outside as just getting some minimal exercise and getting outside of the house a little bit yeah, I've done more walks in the last month than I have in the rest of my life combined, no doubt. <laughs> How do you find them? Do you like them? Is it is No, it they're a- they're terrible, I have to say. I there's been a few things. It's actually uh, we have this on the outline, but we could do some of it now. I there's been like a few things where during quarantine I was like, "Oh, you know, this is my time to find my inner peace." Like everybody's all about making their own food and savoring the slow moments of life going for walks and i guess as i am forced to do those things i will come to learn why they're so great and in fact they're just terrible truly awful such a huge waste of time (laughs) walking is yeah walking really gets me because it's like i could burn the same number of calories in one third the time very comfortably in an actual exercise but yeah i don't know the the making food as well because being stuck at home all the time it's like well the only way i'm gonna have enough food for the week is to cook and I hate cooking so much, I can only do it one day a week, otherwise I'll die. And then I have to do it for like nine hours that day, and I also feel like I'm going to die. It's really just a lose-lose-lose. It's It's been truly terrible. I mean, we have felt the pain of the cooking as well. We are not a household that likes to cook, and so it's been a bit of a strain on us to like continue. <laughs> I saw a great tweet that just summarized my exact feelings. It was like, am I supposed to cook and clean up and cook and clean up and cook and clean up for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I know, I know. <laughs> Cause that's yeah. what I feel like I'm constantly doing now. I either I'll cook. And then if I don't clean up, right, it's just a huge mess that <laughs> I leave for myself later. And I hate, I hate that. But I also equally hate having to immediately, as soon as I'm done eating, clean up. Yes. It's just a, such a pain. I had this funny moment yesterday morning where, uh, I so every morning I make either eggs or oatmeal for breakfast and I mean eggs take what 10 minutes and oatmeal takes three but I had this moment of just sheer delight when I realized there were four cold pieces of pizza in the fridge that I could use as breakfast instead I was so pleased I was like (laughs) yes I don't have to make oatmeal I yeah I've just become so desperate for foodstuffs yeah the the walking I have find it I walk with uh, Mary so that's maybe more pleasant than walking alone but I, I find it okay. But I do get what you're saying. Like, I'll walk for, I'll take a 30-minute walk, and that's not very much exercise compared to an actual 30-minute run or other cardio exercise. So I get yeah. that perspective. But it's definitely a lot more, in my opinion, ru- walking is way more pleasant than those other activities. But I'm not achieving my objectives of getting rigorous exercise yeah. and burning calories. So I know what you mean. Off. I think I find walking, I find walking like uh I mean, less unpleasant than running, but not by very much is what I've discovered because a lot of what I don't like about running is the boredom and I feel the same way with walking. It's just like a, an eternity of steps after steps. 
Uh, but I've tried to like start walking to the coffee shop in the morning. But then, you know, I I just kind of thought about this this week. I was like, I walk to the coffee shop and get a latte and come back. And it's like, is that a net negative or positive calorie experience? It's actually not clear. <laughs> the, yeah. All that walking. I think you might be positive just slightly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very defeating. Although I. That's funny. Speak- well, at least you're net. You're close to zero. So that's yeah, still great. a positive. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Speaking of FitBod, I. Uh, I use this app called Gymaholic, much in the same uh, mm-hmm. same idea, I think. But what I like about it is it it uh, pings the Apple Watch every minute between sets. But it, it will give you like some auto-generated workouts. I think it's not as good as FitBot at that. But I have just not had the motivation to work out at home because it's just dumbbells. We got adjustable dumbbells, which is an improvement over nothing. Which which brand of adjustable dumbbells? Are these new? Is this a new addition? Because I was thinking about getting a pair. Yeah, we, you know, I don't know what the brand is. Sorry, but um, that's fine. We got them. Do you like them? When we first got locked in. Um, yeah, they're they're pretty good. They're pretty good. They're like pretty well reviewed ones. I think they're one of the wire cutter choices. But like everything's out of stock right now, so I don't know if you're gonna find it. Yeah, I don't think I will. I've only used them three times, which is a, a real indictment of my exercise regime at the moment. Yeah, so I really, I I need to get back into using them. I just, I find it a little bit difficult because everything feels really boring when you're in your house all day. Like, lifting in your house after working in your house and cooking in your house. It's like, how much more am I going to do in this house? And I, it just saps my energy, which is not good. uh, But I'm trying to get back into it now. Yeah. Well, that brings up an interesting thing that I I just saw and was just posted by Gray on YouTube. It was a video around this exact topic. I'm not sure if you've seen it. I have, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, his recommendation is to try to, to the best of your abilities, section off parts of your house for different activities. So I guess it feels like you're moving into a different space. Yeah. I don't know if you've had any luck with that. We have a rather small apartment, so it's kind of challenging here. I, I think that, I don't think, I don't disagree with anything he had to say in the video. Yeah. I think it all could help if you could, if you have the ability to create separate spaces within your living quarters for specific activities i agree yeah actually i've had some success with that i have like an area for yoga and for lifting and yeah and different areas for working i'm not perfect about keeping boundaries but one thing i've really discovered about myself is i am hypersensitive to the amount of light in a place and that amount of light needs to be like the surface of the sun for me to get anything done like i need just light everywhere and being in the house all day it's like that's just not feasible there's only one room that is really well lit and it's my office which is where i'm sitting now and yeah it's like i i have a hard time i'm not sure why i think it affects my mood and my energy level having a lot of light and it's like lifting in my house it's just not as well lit as the gym working in my house not as well lit as the office yeah maybe i just need a lot more lights yeah that's interesting i do feel that same way Though I'm not sure how it only I only associate that with certain certain aspects like with working particularly my office is rather well lit compared to the rest of my house but I'm not sure I feel that way about working out but I haven't been working out in my house a ton so I mean perhaps that's why yeah. I move into these other spaces and then I'm like oh actually I don't want to do that I just want to lay down and watch television that yeah no that really is how it manifests itself I think I have that struggle as well I'm not sure I wonder if there's any actual research done on that but. What I the problem I'm running into is I share my office with my roommate and my side of the office is probably three degrees warmer than his side of the office. And it's hard to know. Perhaps my body just emits a huge amount of heat energy, but also it's probably coming from all the lamps. 
and the seven Raspberry Pis and three extra computers. So, you know, it's really hard yeah, to track down. Yeah, I think down. you're onto something. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to pinpoint where all this extra oh. heat is coming from. You have your own server room in the corner of your office. Yeah, well, multi-server <laughs> room, yeah. Well, it's going to be a struggle, I think, as we move. I'm not sure we're going to break quarantine anytime soon. I know some states have started to open up with mixed success, mixed results. Um, but, our, yeah, I know that a lot of offices and uh, workplaces are extending this work from home for another yeah. month. Yeah, I would think for white-collar information workers, I just can't see a huge reason for why you'd go back in the office. Yeah, I know. I'm still very interested to see how this all changes, too, when we are allowed to go back. I'm sure I know plenty of people will be very excited to go back. But I still think there's going to be a large co- cohort of individuals that are going to say, I want to just continue work from home 24-7. Oh, you think they'll do it all the time? That's interesting. Yeah, or at least or a significant portion of the time, 60 to 80% of the time. I Yeah, it's been really interesting because for the first two weeks, I'd say, I had a very hard time being productive of my job at home. It was just really hard to stay on task and, you know, you'd get distracted because you're in your house and you have all your house things. Then, like, the laundry would be done or something. It was just really hard to sit down and work continuously for two hours in a way that happens pretty often at the actual office. But as time has gone on, I've realized the flexibility has been hugely beneficial. At the beginning of the day, I've developed this system. I've never done this before. But at the beginning of the day, I make a list of, like, here are the things I must do today, I should do today, and if I have extra time, I could do today. And... Having that direction of like, I'm going to finish one of the must-dos before I get up is really helpful. And at work, it's like, well, I'm going to be here for the exact same number of hours and time of day, no matter what. But at home, it's like, okay, finish this, then I can go for a walk, come back, work on something else. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, I think I've been more productive. It just took some time to get into it. I agree. I I agree with your assessment. So, But I had the benefit of having a little bit of practice at this that I've already for a year and a half at least been working one or two days a week from home and i remember it being challenging at first that i would be easily distracted and didn't know how to you know regiment my time appropriately so that i could be productive from home but over time i've like developed that skill and a big thing for me is working on timers helps Mm. with that i do a similar thing where i will keep a list of tasks that's like these are the things that i need to complete today and I will also set a timer. It's like 40 minutes. For 40 minutes, I'm going to work at my desk and I'm not going to let anything distract me. I'm going to work against these tasks. And um, and then when the timer goes off, I will assess, do I want to take a short break? Do I need to attend to some chores like my laundry or do I want to take a walk or what have you? And I find that I find I'm actually more productive at home for the most part. Not every single day, but on average, I think I'm more productive at my house than I am in the office. And it's, I think, too, depend where your office productivity depends on a lot of factors that you can't control, like who you sit near and how popular those people are. There are a few people I sit near in in the office that are quite popular individuals, and they'll have a lot of people come by their desk. And they're not they're not interested in talking to me at all. They want to talk to this other person, but they're like hovering around me. And I just find it distracting and I don't like it. It gives me this weird sense that I'm like, go away. Don't be near me. I'm trying to focus. And that doesn't happen in my office, right? And you can also just, like, more easily control the interaction you have with individuals. Like, people can't just approach you and start talking to you, which there is some benefit to that, but there's also negatives. And rather, when you're working from home, everything comes through electronically, email or a direct message or something. 
and I get to choose when I respond. And I do, I try to be timely, but it's great where I'm like, I'm at, I'm nearing a good checkpoint in my work. Let me just get through this next 15 minutes and reach that point, And then I will, you know, communicate with this individual. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I've, I've been thinking about a bit recently is should there be standards around synchronous communication? So, you know, synchronous communication being like Teams or Slack, things like that, versus email, where there's no expectation of an immediate reply. And I think part of the issue I have with Teams, which is what we use for work, is that messages that come in are like hanging over my head. Like they feel like a thing that needs to be responded to immediately. Whereas email, and you know, for better or for worse, if I find an email that doesn't seem very important and is going to take me a lot of time, I have no compunction letting that go for three or four days. But yeah, Teams doesn't feel like that at all. It's like, well, you know, somebody messaged me. I need to, first of all, I need to like prove I'm actually working. Like I need to get back to them. <laughs> and And also it's, just an element of like this feels like a person trying to talk to me like this is the substitute for them actually talking to me and so i need to talk back to them and have a conversation and that's interesting i treat it as like a hybrid though i don't treat it as completely synchronous because it isn't i treat it, treat it as a hybrid between synchronous asynchronous I, teams direct messages where like i think there's a reasonable amount of time like a reasonable window in which you could respond it's maybe like 30 minutes to an hour depending where I won't feel bad. I don't feel bad not getting back to them immediately. I will get back to you in a reasonable amount of time. Right? Yeah. I'm not going to delay for days. And if I do delay for days, it means I forgot that you sent me a message. But I am going to control exactly when I respond. And sometimes it's yeah. immediate if you catch me at the right time. Other times it's not. I think it would be useful to have standards set around that for different groups, if that makes sense. Because, you know, if my immediate team messages me, it might be reasonable to say that that's, that's a time where a response is expected within 20 minutes. It's like we all are yeah. working closely together and one person could hold up the other people by not responding. But when yep, it's like other fair. teams, it's like, well, longer time. And I think also having – just having any standards, even if I didn't agree with them, would be useful just to like know how I should be treating the forum. Because I pay a lot of attention to it because it's like, oh, I need to get back to this. Or sometimes I'll get really wrapped up in work and then I'll be like, oh, no, like I, I could have 15 messages from people that I haven't responded to. And I just don't like that. I would like to know what, you know, what's the appropriate level of monitoring. Yeah. Well, I guess there isn't one, right? We're, no. we're all defining it as we go. Yeah, that is. So what do you think would be ideal? And then you can project that out. Well, I actually, I don't know. I'm going, I'm going to go on a tangent and then try to come back. So. I uh, teach a class at University of Cincinnati, and this semester, obviously, it was entirely remote because it was the second half of the semester. So I taught the first class, and then everything from there on out was remote. So we needed to find a way to conduct class over the internet, and I chose Teams. There were a few options, but I chose Teams because I was familiar with it. And in this case, it really alerted me to some of the problems of the synchronous communication because... In the past, students would email me, and I'd get back to them within 24 hours. And they'd email me questions about stuff. Um, and that was fine. And they would ask me in class about those things as well. But the problem with using Teams is that students would message me all the time, every day. And also, it was like a conversation. Like, students would message me, hi, professor. <laughs> and I would have to respond, yes, what is your question? <laughs> You know, it's like we can't you can't wait for me to reply because then we're both going to have to be online and I work a regular job like I don't have time to converse with you. Just like send me this as if it's an email and the lack of standards around it. I, again, like 
even if they were bad standards, just having standards there would be so useful because it would set, it would get everybody on the same page rather than people trying to have a conversation on a medium where that doesn't make sense. So I guess coming back, I guess what I would say is if you want teams to be useful as a synchronous communication, you should only message people when they're green, when they're available. Because then you can have an expectation of having a conversation and then make all non-conversation things emails. I think that's that's where I would land. So less mm-hmm. do less on your synchronous communication channel and move everything to email except stuff you really need to have like a back and forth because you're helping them with something or they're helping you with something. I guess I need to ask, when you say synchronous, do you mean what I described as what I would describe as more of a hybrid or do you consider it as immediate? Because in my mind, it's, synchronous would be immediate communication back and forth versus having delays of any kind um i mean i'm not sure it really matters i'm just curious yeah well yeah when i say synchronous i mean the idea of like responses come one after another and you're building through a conversation maybe this isn't the ideal term to use um no i think yeah because i mean an asynchronous communication like email can be can meet that criteria that you just laid out that's true but rarely would somebody – so I guess part of what – like obviously it's a spectrum, but email's pretty far on the asynchronous side because in email, you would never send somebody an email that was like, hi, how's it going? And then they'd respond, pretty good. How about you? And then you'd respond, yeah, uh, pretty good. I have a question. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. But yeah. The, I think the idea that you are exchanging information in small chunks as part of a larger conversation is not really what email's for. Email, sometimes the first email turns into more emails, but it's – I think it's rarely conversational in the way we understand that, where you have to like watch social cues and sometimes discuss things that aren't actually the topic at hand because it's just part of the function of the conversation. That's so interesting because yeah, I've always had it in my mind is that it's like whether it's synchronous or asynchronous is completely a function of the time to response. Yeah. And not really the content and decorum of the conversation. But I think you make a good point. Yeah, I guess. I think part of it is like the mediums uh, don't necessarily mean you have to use a more synchronous or asynchronous style, but they tend to have attributes about them that lead you towards one approach. And with email, it's the fact that like things stack up in your inbox as if like it's a to-do list almost. Inboxes are just like things you haven't dealt with yet. And in things like Slack and Teams, instead, you have a bunch of different places where you talk to people. And some of those have been read and some of them haven't. But they're all just introduced as streams, just like information flowing at you that you can live respond to. And I think that leads you more to getting back to people quickly and having rapid exchanges. But I mean, yeah, you could do some of this stuff over email. Even like the clients that we use for email aren't aren't set up in a way that you would have a quick back and forth conversation. Because you'd have to keep clicking on a new email and what, something like Teams you just stay in the conversation view and when they type back to you, it shows up and you can type again and it's, it's very easy. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I think you're right. Maybe something that you only, you only communicate when it's green, but I guess sometimes I, I will message somebody on teams when they're yellow or red, knowing they're not going to get back to me, but I want to just have a quick conversation that doesn't need to be in an email. Yeah. Like, so you just get back and it's not urgent. Like, and maybe I just need to be more clear instead of saying like, Hey, Ethan, and then waiting for a response, I need to be like, Ethan, like, hi, Ethan, hope you're doing well. Not an urgent request. Just get back to me when you're available. I want to have a quick conversation. Because I'd rather keep all that stuff out of email, right? Because the email is so much more cumbersome. Oh, interesting. Than just a quick com. If I'm like, hey, I don't understand this documentation. Can you please just briefly describe it to me? 
or like I can't find a link or whatever. I don't want to. I don't want that in email. It's silly. I should just message you directly and wait. I'll wait till you get back to me. It's not urgent. Sometimes it's urgent. I don't know. We need like we need tags on the message. That <laughs> is true, though. We really do. Oh, there's tags on emails. I I actually feel like I'm a pretty pro email person. I I find emails a little easier to deal with because they give you more options. But they do make conversation more formal. That's probably a downside. But I'm curious. Yeah, why do you want to keep stuff out of email? I guess maybe the decorum of it. Like, I feel like when I write an email, I have to follow, you know, these unspoken rules of the way it needs to be formatted. Yeah. Then I start to consider, do I need to CC people? Is there more people in this conversation than than I'm initially thinking about? That's true. And I yeah. end up spending all this time, like, crafting the email and considering, like, who it should be and what is the exact intent of it and stuff. Whereas I don't even, that those thoughts don't cross my mind when I go to Teams. I'm just like, quickly shoot the message off and it's gone. I feel like that's a standards problem as well, though. So, like, in the hypothetical world where we set standards for what belongs in what channel and how long it takes to get back, part of what we would need to change is the decorum of the emails, right? To say that it's okay to have these informal messages where you're just like, hey, was hoping you could get back to me. I have a question about X. And then you just give the question. Yeah, yeah. And maybe you're right. Maybe I, like, ought to just take that approach versus sending a message on Teams and waiting for the response. But sometimes it's in such a way where... I don't mind waiting, but once we start to talk, I do want it to be synchronous. Yeah, that makes sense. Where it's like, because I need to have a back and forth with you, because there's something I don't understand and I need clarification, so it's probably going to take a... And versus going through yeah. email to do that sounds no, that, so much worse. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. That's an ideal situation for a team chat. Interesting. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure we got to any answers. No, but it interesting how our styles differ. It's always interesting how other people perceive the things that you think are, like, obvious and fixed. Yeah, you're right. And it's fun. Yeah, you're right. And we all just like are mandated into the system of you're using email, you're using some synchronous forms of communication. Then there's like within teams, there are layers, right? There's like the direct communication, but then there's also the teams aspect where you're within groups of people. And that also sometimes feels like really awkward and strange. You're like, I don't know if I should just message this person directly or drop it in the teams. Like, I'm not sure. If what I need to ask or say needs to be broadcast to everybody. It is such a complicated game. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Well, well we figured yeah. out. We have more time. We're going to, this is going to be our primary form of communication as we that is true. continue to quarantine. Shall we move on to our follow-up? Yeah, let's do it. So we're going to follow up on seasonal themes. Full disclosure, neither Ethan nor I even remember what we said about seasonal themes in the last episode, but we did say something. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully this is new. (laughs) So hopefully I'm not just repeating myself uh, from the last episode. But so this thought, the idea of seasonal themes came back to me because I've closed out a season of a chapter or a season of my life. And that I'm done with school. So I'm no longer a part-time student. Congrats. I'm done with graduate school. Yes, I thank you. And I'm so pleased to be done. <laughs> not, because, not because of like I'm now a more educated, astute person or whatever. It's just that I have my free time back and I'm so pleased. Oh, you're now a master. I don't have to worry about assignments. You're and, a master of economics. Yeah. <laughs> You've mastered it. That feels such. That feels like such a strange thing to say. Because <laughs> I definitely have not mastered the field of economics. Um, as we see, as we look at it, like the, I'm on a tangent now, but like the economic news of the, what's being caused by the coronavirus, no economist has any clue yeah. what's going on. So 
No, I don't feel like a master. It's such a strange title, like title <laughs> for a degree to say you've mastered this entire yeah. field, right? <laughs> but back to the theme. So I'm like closing out this one section and chapter of my life. And now I have all this free time again. And I'm like, well, what do I want to do with it? What do I, I want to capitalize on this moment and make good use of the time I have available to me, both because I've had to like delay this for like two years because I had to put my focus on my education. And also because I know this is a limited window, not I, it isn't going to last for years that I will always have this free time. There will be new things that come up in my life later and um, my free time will shrink. So I've begun to think, well, what is it that I want to focus on? What should my season, what should my season be? And what I landed on, well, one, I'm, I'm embracing the idea. I don't know where I landed in the last episode, but I, I've decided to embrace the idea of like, this is a season of X. And so when I make decisions or choices, like when I'm faced with a decision, I will err on the side of X, right? Rather than something comfortable or different or whatever. So what I landed on was the season of exploration. You want to, you want to tell us more? <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for you to be like, well, what does that mean? I was waiting for there to be this conversation. I didn't want this to be a monologue on my, <laughs> on my seasonal thing. So what does it mean, right? So what it means to me is that for the past two years, I've had to restrain myself from not exploring topics and things that interest me because I was so limited on time and I had other priorities that I had to attend to. So what this means to me is that I am going to let loose on this and and dive into topics I find interesting and explore them. So it's going to look like reading more books on topics that I would like, would have liked to have already read books on, but didn't have the time to podcasts, movies, whatever. And accompanying it is to push myself to write more about these things. So nothing, you know, intensive, you know, 500 to a thousand words. But as I read a book, if I have interesting, if I have thoughts that I find interesting to write about them, or when I conclude a book to take, take a moment to write a thousand words about what I thought of, what I found interesting in it and what I think I'll take away from it. I'm calling it the summer of exploration. It may extend past the summer, but for the next three months, I'm going to spend some time just exploring things that I find interesting, working on hobby projects, like potentially building a website or something else I find interesting. And without having clear like direction or objective of why this is useful and why I need to do it and how it will pay dividends in the future, instead just saying, I find this interesting and I want to explore it. That sounds fantastic. That sounds super, super fun. So, okay, so building a website is one example. Do you have other things on the horizon? Well, the one other one was, and I, I'm not sure if you noticed, but I'm going to actually commit to learning how to edit a podcast, mm. which was one thing that when we started doing this, I was like, I want to learn how to edit a podcast. And, and it just happened that I was still in school. So then I pushed all the burden of, and responsibility onto you. Luckily, we've and only you, had like you, four episodes to edit. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you've been kind and understanding and, and have edited them all for us. But that's another area where I'm like, I'm actually going, this has been something I've wanted to explore and been interested in. And now that I have the time, I'm going to actually do it. Cool. One other area, it's an academic topic, but political philosophy. So I find politics and philosophy both interesting. And there are a number of monumental books in political philosophy that I've always said, if I had time, I would read those. Well, now I have time. So I'm going to actually take the time to read. I'm reading The Prince now. I read Common Sense by Thomas Hobbes, or sorry, Thomas Paine. Wait, the the prince is the, what's that guy's name? The really famous one, Machiavelli? I think that's his name. That's what I know it comes from. 
I've I often heard people say like this is such a Machiavellian approach to politics, and I'm like, what are they even talking about? I don't even know what this means. So now I'm going to try to find out. No, <laughs> I tried to read that once. I got like two pages in, and I was like, this, this writing style is a bit dense. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm like, I'm on chapter. The chapters are super short. I'm like, I don't know, ten percent into the book, and it's okay. But I do find it really confusing because he references a lot of what was current events at the time, and it's like. Consider France. They came into Italy and they went into this like area which doesn't exist anymore, right? It's like to call it something totally different now. And it's like, and had they done these things differently with the populace, they would have been successful. But instead, they did this. And it was a complete failure. And I'm like, I don't know any of this history. So, yeah. so wait, that, when was it written? Um, I know 500 years ago. Okay. was like the summary. I'm not sure exactly exactly when. Okay. I know it was written by an individual. Machiavelli in Machiavelli. I'm not sure what his name is. He uh, was on the outs with the family of power. Mm. He like once held a position of power as a prince over a province and through a series of events was like thrown out and like put in jail and tortured by the family because they didn't like him anymore. And he was able to get out of that and as a way to try to impress people and that family again, he wrote this book to be like, uh. look how politically savvy i am you ought to respect me and like bring me back into the fold i think is it the medicis that was like the famous italian family at the time right i think so okay yeah they make an appearance in assassin's creed so obviously they're a big deal (laughs) is that the extent of your knowledge on them that's the bar yeah assassin's (laughs) creed had the medicis and leonardo da vinci so i'm pretty sure those are the only famous people of that era yeah that's the only famous people in all of italy's history i think (laughs) No, but you know more than I do, actually. So, anyways, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. The point was, I'm just going to dive in and, like, I don't know much about this topic. I don't know much about these people or this or this book, but I'm going to take the time. I'm going to read it and see what I can get from it and see if I find it interesting. But I wouldn't be surprised either if I come away with some of these and be like, why is this even popular? Why yeah. do people care about this so much? I'll be very <laughs> interested to hear your updates on that. Because, yeah, I've had that experience with a few classic books where I started and I just... I just don't get the appeal, but who knows? Maybe mm. maybe this will be useful. Maybe it'll improve your political skills. Yeah, and I would actually I need some refinement there. <laughs> I think. <laughs> but yeah, so I read Common Sense. That only took a few days. Both of the I start out with both these books because they're both under a hundred pages. They're both really short. And Common Sense was real was interesting. Some of it is a bit dry, I guess. And like, I just find the arguments unconvincing. But it is interesting to see what Americans in 1775 would have found convincing as arguments. Yeah. So apparently Common Sense was the is the best-selling book of in American history. But it wasn't a book at the time. It was like a pamphlet. Interesting. Yeah, but it's the best-selling text in American history by an American author, I think, mm. too, is the other caveat. But he just goes through and he's like, we, America ought to be independent, and here are all the reasons why. He supports revolution. He denounces the king, says that the monarchy, for a lot of reasons, is a bad design and will strip America of its liberties. And if basically, like, it makes an appeal to Americans and is like, if you do not, if we do not revolt, if we do not push for independence, we will leave nothing for posterity. Our children will have nothing. They will be just, you know, effectively slaves of the state of Great Britain. So it's really interesting. Well, one of the most interesting little bits, tidbits I got out of it is like, in the second part of the book, for a significant part of it, and his argument against the monarchy is that a biblical one, which I I didn't find very convincing for a number of reasons. 
Um, but apparently Americans at the time did. So one, that's interesting. But two, Thomas Paine later on went on to write a book called The Age of Reason. Okay. In which he's like, and I haven't read this book yet, but my the synopsis that I read online was that it is an appeal to reason rather than religion. And in it, he makes some arguments that the Bible is not a divine text. Or maybe he doesn't say divine, but he says like, is not in absolute text. It's not absolute truth. So it's really interesting to me, interesting to me that in this pinnacle, his like most popular writing, he makes this large appeal through biblical text. He's often quoting the Bible and saying, look, you know, in this book and in this, in these lines, it says monarchies are bad for Jewish people. So monarchies are bad for everybody yeah. and we shouldn't have a monarchy. <laughs> that is interesting. Um, and then just a few late years later, he's like, actually the Bible is not, <laughs> you know, an abs- <laughs> the absolute truth. Even though I convinced all of you through <laughs> with arguments from it, that it will, that it, that it will, you know, yeah. I don't know what it's, it's your needs. Yeah. <laughs> so I, then I'm like, well, did he believe this at the time and just used it because he knew that Americans would find it a convincing argument? Or was there something in between when he wrote Common Sense to mm. when he wrote The Age of Reasons that, like, he had a shift in his theology and beliefs? I'm not sure. Perhaps I'll find out. Interesting. In the season of exploration. No, I really look forward to updates on that. Yeah. I would I would love to do that at some point. Is there anything else we should talk about with that? Because I have some updates on, on my theme. No, no. I'd like to hear yours. Okay. So it's, it's sort of related. Um, so... Yeah, so my, my theme has been the year of uh, diet and fitness, or health and fitness. It doesn't matter. They're, I think of them as the same. But it's been interesting because every week I do a weekly review, and I write down how various parts of my life went, and I think specifically about diet and fitness and how that's going. And I I have recently added another short uh, section of my weekly review about the three areas of my life that I feel sort of summarize my development as a person. And I, I don't know why I thought of this, but I was just out for a run one time and I was like, oh, that's like a pretty good way to summarize without getting into the granular various topics of my life, like generally how to grow as a person and the things that I would care about growing in. And the three areas are goodness, discipline, and understanding. So every week now, I force myself to write how that week went for those areas. And to be clear, the, the idea is like goodness is like being a decent person. And, uh, discipline is discipline i mean it's like holding it together making sure you're doing what you should be doing not procrastinating uh and understanding is basically anything intellectual of like learning or thinking hard problem solving and what's interesting to me about your your theme of exploration is i am really tempted to do that but one thing i've realized by writing down every week how those areas are going is that i am pulled always towards the understanding area Like what I want to do with my time is read and do projects and just think about stuff, do puzzles. Like that's sort of how I waste time. And if I want to work on something, I need to pull myself away from those. So like maybe, maybe if I succeed this year, what I've realized is where I need to put all that effort is into discipline. Discipline is usually where I fall down and die in fitness. So in order to achieve my main goal for the year, the part of myself I need to work on is the discipline part. And focusing on that has been really helpful. But if I feel like, I make significant enough strides there, then I will probably turn back and say, of goodness and understanding, is there one of these that I want to think a lot about? But what I found is I never have a week where I don't do much in the understanding area because it's still, it's just like what I want to do for fun. That's how I cool down most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's really inter- interesting because it sounds like your season of exploration sort of maps to that. It's just more open-ended. 
but that yeah, it does yeah. sound really appealing to me very very fun <laughs> it's just like your natural season is the season of exploration or understanding yeah i don't i it's more like just inclination because i do find when i'm busy i don't really get to any of those that's that's what happens mm-hmm. and so i just finished teaching the class that i mentioned earlier and now i have free time again but it's now suddenly more obvious like with all that free time my natural inclination is just to put all of it towards understanding but instead i i need to split it up into all of those areas Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interesting so when it comes to discipline like what is it that you are writing down or reflecting upon or doing in your day-to-day life to make you more disciplined that's somewhat of an abstract concept yeah it like, really is for for a lot of people the interesting thing would be they want to be they want to understand more and but their natural inclination is to not do that it is to veg out and do things unproductive things i'll say And they would couple that with discipline. So like, I'm going to be more disciplined and make myself read the book. Yeah, that's a good point. But you already have this natural inclination. So should your discipline go in the reverse? Like, I will not read the book and I will instead watch the television. Uh, That's a funny way to put it. It, I mean, to be fair, it's not like I'm just like a reading machine. I, I actually have a very hard time reading long books. Like I have all kinds of weaknesses with investing in knowledge, certainly. And I do have times where I veg out. Recently, I've been just tearing through Survivor, my new favorite show. It is so good. <laughs> um, so I, I, I have all those things, all those weaknesses. But um, yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. For me, the discipline isn't just about uh, tearing myself away from the understanding stuff, but it is some of it. So like actually this morning I had an issue with it and yesterday. So I've been dying to work on this personal project recently, just counting down the days until my class was over because I had this idea for a personal project that would combine a lot of skills that I wanted to learn, make me do a lot of reading I wanted to do. But I worked on it all day yesterday, and then I knew that today I need to cook, get groceries, uh, exercise, I need to do all these things. And yesterday I still needed to exercise, but I wanted to work on this project. And yesterday I did a really good job of tearing myself away every hour and doing something. So I would like go lift, and then I would come back, work for a while, and then... After that, I would go make rice, you know, just like do my day in between the project. And today it's like, oh, I'm going to have to do that again, except I have more chores to do. And that's where the discipline comes in. It's like, can I tear myself away from the thing that's fun to do the things that need to be done? And that's how I assess it. And in terms of how do I get better, I'm not exactly sure. Like, I think that there's a little bit of evidence that discipline is a thing you build up over time. That like practice does make you improve. But at the same time, I know there's evidence that you only have the capacity to to be so disciplined at a given time. Like if you need to be disciplined about one thing, you tend to get weaker in other areas. So what I want to do is slowly scale up and like work on one thing at a time and feel like I've gotten more discipline and then see if I can be disciplined about more things. And right now the discipline is mostly, mostly diet, but also exercise, but mostly diet. And that's, that's basically how I'm practicing and assessing myself. Interesting. Interesting. No, I agree that discipline is a finite resource and you can increase your maximum capacity, but I do think there's a limit on that too. It's probably different for each person, but I found for myself, different points in my life, I've been very disciplined, but there's still limits to my ability to be disciplined. There will be some area in my life where I cut corners and don't, don't do what I, what it is I would, would prefer to do in my ideal state. Yeah. But no, that's really, that is interesting on goodness, right? Can you expand on that a little bit? Do you have a like underlying philosophy? I I feel like I would have a hard time with that because I'd be like, I don't, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure I always know what goodness always is. Yeah, it's pretty tricky. I think, yeah, I for now, I've just conceded the point that it's hard to define and just sort of, you know, I write down notes about like 
did I do things well this week or poorly in terms of dealing with others and in terms of making a positive impact. Um, and, you know, it, it always comes with this caveat, right? Like every week I write down like, yes, I could have donated all of my money. <laughs> you know, like I could empty the bank account. And so it's always a spectrum. And it's like, well, maybe I should be doing that. And I think at some point you have to sort of accept that there's a there's an amount of of goodness that you will not achieve at least it, it just depends on your ethical system i guess but if you're anything close to utilitarian it's like well there's always more you could be yes. doing and so you have to accept like what do i expect i will not do and from there how good can i be right. beyond that um and then i would say within reason and then what does within reason mean and that's hyper subjective as well and so f for me it's been a lot the way I've been assessing it recently because I'm stuck at home all the time is, you know, in my interactions with people when I do see them over video calls, or like with my roommate who's here calling my parents, it's like, have I done a good job of not not creating conflicts of of making sure that I treat those people well? And like, yeah, just just in general, like, how can you have a positive impact on the people that you talk to? Mm -hmm. OK, interesting. Yeah, it's a weird time for it right now because there's there's just not a lot of opportunities like it's a relatively small portion of time that you actually talk to people so i don't know it, we'll see how it goes i think once i actually have exposure to other humans again it may be different yeah do you do you would you say you follow utilitarian philosophy is that what you would think you would base your goodness on yeah probably yeah interesting i don't want us to get too much in a tangent there but i'm not sure I find that would be very challenging for me. On the face of it, it makes sense. You're like, it's the all the good minus all the bad. It's like the net result. And you want to, you want the highest net result. And that would be the best outcome. But the problem is you, it's nobody agrees upon the fixed value of any good act or the value of even individuals, like their lives and, and what it would mean to like alleviate some pain or struggle in their life, how much that should even be worth. So then it becomes, becomes then I'm like completely lost. And I'm like, well, I don't think that this philosophy helps me very much because I get stuck in the analysis of what it is I should do versus just doing good things. That's interesting. Yeah. I Well, I would have two responses. One is in terms of like a critique of utilitarianism, I think that's true in terms of how it guides your life. Like maybe it's it's quite challenging to use it as a guide to your life, but I don't know if that makes it wrong so much as you need a heuristic. Mm -hmm. You need to like develop some heuristics around it and say, th this is a reasonable proxy and will keep me from being paralyzed into indecision. But the other is that all three of these areas are super hard to define, to yeah. say like what actually is improving my understanding. And often that's, again, heuristics. It's like you need to think at a high level, like what did it feel like I did this right? And sometimes maybe you need to reflect and say, I need to know more than feeling right. Did it actually improve me? And maybe you sit down and think really hard. But in general, I think it's it's actually pretty obvious with these things. For me, it's been pretty obvious what things count as good and what things count as bad in each of those areas. Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. That makes sense. Well, that is interesting. We'll have to follow up with each other on our next call and see how we're both doing. Yeah. Seasons. Okay. All right. Well, now I want to hear about uh, your new iPad. Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, I want to talk about my new <laughs> iPad. New passion of mine. Um, it's no, oh, it's been so good. Uh, so I I purchased the twelve point nine inch iPad Pro just after Apple announced it. I've I've learned a valuable lesson about myself. I know this has come up in this podcast before. There have been times where a new Apple device has come out, and I've said to myself, "Self, maybe you will buy this." 
and then I've waited, which is just a stupid thing to do because, of course, I am going to buy it, <laughs> and I just need to pull the trigger at the beginning because otherwise I just have to wait longer. So I was smart this time, and I purchased it immediately. And, yeah, it came in came in pretty fast, and it's, yeah, it's just glorious. So now I have this 12.9-inch iPad Pro, and it's the new model, obviously. So it has USB-C. It has, like, the flat edges. And what I was using before that was an 11-inch iPad Pro, but the very last iPad Pro before this design. So it didn't have flat edges, still had lightning, still had Touch ID, had the big bezels. And I have just, oh, and it had the crappy Apple Pencil. Now I have the nice one. I have just been so pleased. It's been so great. One thing I was worried about was buying this big iPad. Like, it is physically quite large. It's as big as a 13-inch laptop. And it has very small bezels, so the screen is almost edge-to-edge. And I thought that I was eventually going to be annoyed at the size and bulkiness. And I have to say, very quickly I adjusted. Very, very quickly I adjusted. And it just feels like the right size of an iPad. And I pick up my other iPad, and I'm like, ah, a toy iPad. (laughs) And, uh... Sometimes I read on the small one, but even then I'm like, oh, this iPad is kind of small. <laughs> <laughs> so the big one has been great. And it's also it also has cellular, which I'm really happy about so far. So is this your primary computer now, would you say, for your personal activities? It really depends. Um, I I would say it's it's gotten a bigger share of my time than the old iPad did. And I will try to do some computery things on it, but mostly it's reading video and specific creative activities so i'll try writing a little bit but i don't have a keyboard yet i ordered the fancy new keyboard and it's not okay i was gonna ask so you're getting you're getting the new ipad keyboard that one i also asked myself whether i wanted and i actually wasn't sure because it's pretty expensive so i waited until yeah i waited until the reviewers had models and gave some feedback but it seems it seems worth getting so i will i will get that and then this may expand to take up more of my computing activities i see so it's mostly browsing and some creation. Yeah. Okay. And how did, so what is it in your use of it that makes it different from your original iPad, the one you had previously? Outside of the screen being bigger, is it snappier? Are there like, is there some something about it that makes the uh, experience more pleasant to use? Yeah, there's a few things. So it's, it's kind of interesting because the screen being bigger is like 90% of it. It's like, this is just so clearly what I needed. And honestly, I think it's it would be better for almost everyone, unless you like really are bothered by the size. And the reason I say that is, yes, it, you can fit more on the screen, which is great. Different apps actually display differently, which I didn't expect. There's more shown on the screen instead of just everything sized up. But also the keyboard is big enough you can actually use it. So the on-screen keyboard is big enough that I can type now. I used to try to type on the other iPad, and I would just mess up all the time. And I was like, on-screen keyboards are terrible. They're useless. I can't use them. No, it turns out it's just because it was too small. So now when I want to type something, I just turn it sideways, put it on my lap, and type it, and then go back to reading. And that is such a nice experience. I don't even need a discrete keyboard. Um, But other things, getting cellular was a really good decision because now I will just go somewhere with it and especially now that I'm walking a lot and I've become very bored of walking as we discussed. Uh, Yesterday I walked to the coffee shop and just read articles on my iPad the whole way there. It was great. So I just stayed off roads with actual traffic and just, you know, walked around with this giant iPad and read. (laughs) And I was like, I look like a total fool, but this is such a good use of my time. So that's been great. Yeah. I've gone to the park just like I'll bike to the park with just my iPad and then sit down there and then I don't even need to have things pre-downloaded. Yeah. It's, it's been very pleasant. Also the form factor just feels nice to hold. It's like, heavy and solid feeling it's it's just a little more pleasant than the old one i think Mm -hmm. maybe that's just enjoying the new but i'm not sure well it does look really great uh from 
what I've seen online. I'm still rocking the sixth generation 10.9 inch, I think. Very small iPad. Oh, right? 10, 5, oh I yeah, 10.5. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With the Touch ID um, non pro variant. It is. And I. I struggle, though, to say, like, I need to move up to this much more expensive, more powerful iPad when, like, I'm just not, I don't find that the creative things I do would lend lend itself to the iPad. And I know I would like the bigger screen, but I can get by with this smaller screen and I have a MacBook Pro. So, I don't know. It's like I've already shelled out a lot of money for some of this equipment. Do I really need this, like, other Pro line? Uh, So, I'm not sure. I don't know. I get that. Yeah, I I have found that a lot of things now that I used to force myself to do on the iPad actually feel natural on the iPad. So sometimes I do my weekly reviews on the iPad because it's not a ton of typing and mostly reading. And sometimes I'll, um, if, I, if I'm just like taking notes on something, I just pull out the iPad and type on there and I don't have to go back to a computer. I do like drawing. The new pencil is so much better than the old one because it actually stays on the side of the iPad. I really like being able to draw some stuff periodically in my notes. There's been a lot of stuff that has actually made me shift. And also the screen brightness is great. It's much brighter than a computer. So if I want to go outside, that's what I use. And I find a way to do it on the iPad. So, yeah, overall, it it has proven that it definitely has a place in my productivity life. Okay. Well, maybe I'll consider it. Maybe not this this variant, but perhaps the next one. Next one might be a form factor change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I don't know. My, my my iPad's still going strong. I just use it for consumption only, though. I don't really do much, uh, anything creative on it. Like, if I want to type and write, I do so on my actual computer. But I can see it being really yeah. nice to have an iPad to do that type of work on. Which leads me to my next question. I think I asked you this already, but I want to hear from you. So what app do you use for writing? You said you're not the, a big writer, but I am curious, like, what do you use and why? I've been on the hunt for a markdown editor that I find to be like one that will suit my needs and two is reasonably priced. That's been the, that's been the hard part really is the latter. Yeah, no, I get that. I I bounced around a little bit. Um, I started on Ulysses because I got a free trial, but that's, I forget that's not cheap. It's not, it's like Um, $40 a, a year. Plus, they charge you for both the Mac and the iPad variant. Oh. Yeah, so it's like forty plus twenty five for both. So it'd be sixty five to I don't, a year. So I don't really remember now because it's been a while since I used Ulysses, but I just don't think that it offered anything or even like a particularly nicer experience than Drafts. So I use Drafts, which is free. You can pay for premium. I forget what premium gets you, but um, I've I've heard the developer on a bunch of podcasts, and he's like. He's obviously making like a technical tool, which I appreciate. Uh, it supports Markdown inline, but it's not perfect. All the headings end up being the same size. What else? Yeah, I, I think in general, it's probably fine. The headings being the same size is the main thing that bugs me. That's what I do my writing on now. And it syncs into iCloud across your Mac and iPad and phone. So, yeah, that's where I am now. But overall, what I really want is a Markdown editor that renders the markdown and supports vim key bindings and i have not found that that's like the holy grail i can't find anything no i don't think i have that for you i did find a new beta app called typora that is a markdown editor and a markdown reader and it does a lot of things i really like it is a bit buggy though because it's a beta 
but maybe you check that out and maybe that gets hmm. you closer for what to platform it's on it's on mac now but i imagine they're gonna get to ios at some point okay. but it's only it's only gonna work on mac at this point i didn't see an ios beta interesting yeah, I was thinking recently I would be willing to use almost any WYSIWYG editor that supported Vim key bindings. That's I just want that. Even no matter what other problems it has, I just want an editor that actually like does styling and lets me use key bindings because I'm so much slower without them. It's very frustrating, I think. So I don't know. But yeah, I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm not sure there is a great one, great answer out there, frankly. Typor is free for now. Once it gets out of beta, it's not going to be free. And then there are a few other offerings that are hit and miss on different features of the way that it formats the text or just looks in general. And then there's Ulysses where it's like people love it and it does look great and it functions nicely, but it's super expensive comparatively. Mm -hmm. And also Ulysses keeps all of the text within Ulysses. They're not marked down. Mm -hmm. You can export them, but I imagine that, you know, at some point, like the critical mass of documents you have in there would make it really challenging to leave i don't know if they have mass export or not but yeah so i'm i'm gonna use typora i think until i'm not sure well i guess we'll see that they regularly update it so uh we'll see how the development goes see if they make it more stable i have had some really weird bugs where it's like i'm writing in a document and then suddenly they have like a windowing right window pane so like Starts with, like, outer, and then there's a middle, and then there's the actual text that you're editing. And I'll be editing some text, and I'll do something, and then suddenly in the file, one of the panes is files within the directory that I'm in. It'll, like, just remove the document. And I'll be like, what just happened? Did it delete the document? Is the actual document gone, or is this just a UI error? Where it's, That's <laughs> yeah. good. So then I, like, yes. scramble to, like, copy all the text before I do anything else because I'm afraid I'm about to lose it all. Things like that. Man, they have a nice website. Whew. <laughs> fancy website for an open source project is it open it's source? open source yeah well i don't know it's proprietary you can see their code on github though i think oh but maybe not all of it source. but i think it's their plan is to be proprietary like at some point they're oh it's yeah at some point they're going to charge for this free during beta yeah. oh but it's across hmm, across all these platforms mm-hmm. Interesting. Maybe check it out. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll toy with it. I would really like it to be available on iOS. I agree. That is one thing I like about drafts. It's available on all the platforms. And it integrates really nicely with all the other apps. One thing that's kind of cool about it is you can start, you can like put a shortcut on your home screen or even in, uh, I think you could put in, what's the thing on the left called? Today view mm-hmm. or something yeah, weird. Yeah. That. Um, I think you can put a shortcut there and then just open a new draft and start typing. And then you can choose what to send it to, which I like. So I haven't set it up yet, but I'm going to. So I would just like start typing. And then once I finish typing, it's like, is this a note? Is this an email? Is this a text message? And it like sends them over to these other areas. That's why it's called drafts. And that I think is a pretty cool feature. But it's not what I want a writing app for is writing articles, which is the only time I really write. And the other issue I had with it is I think you can't embed images inline and have them render. Oh. But that's what I want to see. I want to see, like, what does it look like as I put the images in. Typora has inline embedded images. So, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah very nice. It's very, and that actually works really nicely. I played with that because I was, I was just curious how that would perform. And I didn't have any glitches with it. It worked really nicely. Hmm. What I've ended up doing, which sounds really painful, but. I typically write up, if I'm going to do an article, so the most recent article I published, I did this. I write up most of it in drafts, but not all of it. 
And then once I feel like it's pretty much done and I now I need to like add images, clean it up and stuff, then I put it on my website on the uh, I have like a, a dev version of my website running. And then I put it in there, see how it looks, make all my changes in Vim in the file itself. It, totally excruciating, but that's how I finish it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Check out Typora. It might solve some of these problems for you. Yeah, and it make actually it may. A single, a single source for your article creation, and then you can easily move it into your website. Yeah. I will take a look. Okay. Cool. All right, what should we do next? We got a few other topics on here. So... I stumbled upon your blog post from April 23rd, 2017, cleverly titled Closed Minds, Full Schedules, Can't Learn. I really appreciated that. So A plus on the title. <laughs> <laughs> Always like a Friday Night Lights reference. I've actually never seen it. <laughs> oh, now you've gutted me. That hurts. It's so good, Ethan. Uh, it's so good. That's what everybody tells me. <laughs> but in it, you discussed how some notable thinkers and podcasters and just influential people that you know suggest that you should narrow your focus into you know a core set of skills and topics and areas that are like your wheelhouse and that you become experts in this but you you suggest that what if or you you pose like what if variety is like your skill and is what you're interested in and i'm just curious to hear your thoughts now a few years later do you still feel the same way? And I guess this somewhat ties into like my my season of exploration, right? So I'm going to spend a whole bunch of time diving into fields that I'm not a part of. And um, when I could spend the time refining my skills and becoming more skilled in areas that, I, that I'm already actively participating in. So I'm just curious what you think and, and do you like feel the same way? Have your thoughts changed at all? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I should have reread this. I'm skimming back through it, but I do, I mean, I do remember basically the thesis, which is be, being well-rounded is good for you. And I, I definitely stand by that, That, but I've maybe not always been that way, but mostly been that way. Like I do have a lot of different interests and I sometimes resist the temptation to go too deep on something. I probably to a lot of people I know, it seems like I am that deep on technology and maybe in some ways I am, but I wouldn't consider myself like, I don't know, that isn't all I read about at all. So recently I just subscribed to a finance newsletter, which I really like. Uh, and I feel like that's part of the the broadening horizons. And I try to keep my Twitter uh, attuned to several different topics, like follow different things, read some some other like biology and chemistry stuff I don't know a lot about, but I try to know a little. I think in general, being a specialist is really valuable if you are just looking to get some kind of recognition. So a lot of society focuses on this idea of specialization because eventually you can be the best in your field. And I think part of that is because if you narrow the field enough, of course, you're the only one who studies, you know, the, the extreme specifics of this this tiny topic. And that's fine. And I think the academic system has really pushed this upon us, which I don't love. It's like in academics, you're necessarily part of a department. And then within the department, in order to get some acclaim, you need to have like a subspecialty. And eventually people are choosing these really narrow things. But from what I've read of people that that really do important stuff, and also from people that I know that I find interesting, it's almost always people who have a breadth of knowledge because they can start to connect things together. And that that may not be true in academia, but it does seem to be true everywhere else. And understanding how fields relate and seeing patterns that persist from one field to another is really valuable. And also, it's just nice to be able to keep up with whatever is being said. Uh, Recently, I watched the Bill Gates documentary, and I was really struck by that, what a generalist Bill Gates is, which is maybe surprising for a guy that ran a tech company. But he reads about everything and jumps at all this new stuff. 
And I think that's part of why he's been really influential in solving a lot of world problems recently, because he has a background across the board of all these different fields that could be useful. So anyway, that's that's my high level thoughts. But I think in general, I still I'm still pretty much on the same page as the Ethan that wrote this article. I, I think we're pretty much in agreement on this topic. I see the benefits of becoming a specialist, so I wouldn't shy away from it in certain things to say in this specific area of my work life or my skill set, I am going to become even more specialized, right? And become try to become known within my circles as an expert in X. But I don't I'm not sure I would do that at the detriment of of being a generalist or yeah, being a generalist and having a wide breadth of knowledge. I frankly, I just think it's more interesting. Like life is more interesting when you have a wide breadth of knowledge and you explore other areas and not so much. So when you become a specialist, you often become dull or like the topic, the subject matter becomes dull to you and you feel, I don't know, it doesn't, it's not fresh any longer. And it's, it, it's much less likely that you're going to be surprised or, or have a revelation in a, in, in a way that is not true when you're a generalist. So I think that's what draws me to the generalist side of things is to, I find life to just be much more interesting this way. And I'm probably, and I hope that through being a generalist and exploring many fields, I am more interesting and thoughtful and just overall like a better person, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely a benefit. I, I think about that in terms of, um, well, I, you know, I actually find pretty difficult to uh have conversations with new people in general like i i don't know it's not like i'm totally falling on my face but i find it hard to maintain conversations with new people and not be really uncomfortable or make them really uncomfortable it just it's hard to find interesting things and it's hard to be engaging but one thing that really helps is finding something that they know a lot about and care about and you being interested in it yeah and i don't think that's possible as a specialist like instead often you're going to be the one who has the interesting thing you're like let me tell you about my thing and people don't really enjoy that but usually, but if you are interested in a lot of things, you can usually find something the other person knows about that they can tell you about. And you don't even need to feign interest. You can genuinely be like, oh, that's really interesting. Even people that that sometimes don't seem to have a lot of interests in like academic areas, usually you'll find one thing that they do know a lot about because it's it's part of their daily life or something. And they, they really can talk a lot about it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I have found that too, like as a, as a conversationalist, that's my go-to strategy is to find what it is this person is interested in or has a, a deep base of knowledge on and then ask them questions about it. And for the most part, I'm able to like carry on a conversation without faking it because I'm interested in a lot of different things. But yeah, that's definitely my go-to strategy Like versus trying to, I don't know, generate the conversation. Most of the conversation myself, it's me prodding the other person for them to talk and I will listen. And that's a mostly a successful strategy. And often people don't even realize you're doing it. They love to talk uh, and they love to talk about themselves and the things they're interested in. So it's yeah. like, it's a win-win. No, it's very true. Yeah, it is It is kind of interesting. Do you feel like there's, a, there's any common fields that you do find boring that like you, you wouldn't be willing to accept somebody talking about? I'm not sure if I can come up with them off the top of my head, but you know, I'd know it when I hear it, right? I'd be like, yeah. oh, not interested in that. Or I already know about this and so you should switch topics. <laughs> Or yeah, I, that, there's some of that too, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know, because sometimes you find an intersection. So what I was going to say is, surprisingly, because I do kind of like sports, but I think a lot of sports topics, that's how I feel about. Unless somebody has true deep knowledge about the like the strategy of the game or the technique of the game, but people that just want to talk about sports because they know who won the championship in 95, like that's not interesting. I agree with that, yeah. I mean, I guess I can, I can go along with that a little bit. I can go along with that somewhat, just depending on what it is that's being discussed and if it's something that 
like I found interesting or a part maybe if it's like a little bit of NBA history that I'm not as familiar with and like I really like the NBA. Um, but I get where you're coming from. It's more of that like archetypal like bro esque like type person that's like my hobby is sports and it's like uh yeah that's exactly yeah yeah one thing i've realized that i actually am quite interested in and i can i can talk to people about for a while but i know very little about it's actually turned out to be a very good icebreaker is um like handyman type things people people doing their own house maintenance or building something themselves like i really like the concept of engineering i really like building things and, and designing things but I have no experience in the physical world whatsoever. And so I actually really like listening to people talk to me about how they built stuff and design stuff and why it works. That's That's been a really good one. And a lot of times I find that that intersects with people who own a house yeah. because there's just things that come with a house. And it's like, well, I'm probably not going to, but I can learn a lot from like, why did you do it this way? What were the challenges you ran into? Right, right. Yeah. And you never know, like maybe one day you will and you will like have a wider breadth of understanding of like what it might take to do a thing because you've talked to people but that is one area too well this one area that i actually found that i'm way more interested in than i ever thought i would be so as i've searched for houses searched for a house um i went down some rabbit holes youtube rabbit holes of like this old house so that's a a program and they they teach you sometimes they just like talk about these old houses that they're going to rehab but a lot of them they'll like teach you how to do things so people will be like i have this problem and it's like my thing is broken it doesn't work or i don't know why and they'll like come in and they'll like step by step show them like well this is how you diagnose the problem and this is going to be the remedy for your specific situation and it's just it ended up being way more fascinating than i realized and it made me want to like expand in this area too of like become more handy so in some ways i mean maybe i'm way overestimating my interest in this and when it when like the rubber hits the road and i'm actually having to do maintenance on my own house i will hate it and but i it made me look forward to a little bit the idea of like doing projects around the house um yeah yeah i could imagine as much as i like complain about the idea of home maintenance and stuff i i could imagine eventually getting into that some of it feels like an engineering problem yeah and it is just fascinating, some of the things. Like, I just didn't understand. I mean, yeah, I just didn't understand the complexities of houses and how intricate they could be. And just, and just some of the things you find or experience, I'm like, oh, this is way more fascinating than I've ever thought. I just presumed houses were all boring and the same. And that's not true at all. No, it's funny. It's funny, though, because now that you say that, it did make me think of another topic that I'm genuinely super bored by, but I want to be really interested in. And it's cooking. It's so boring. <laughs> And it's like, I just, I, you know, I really want the, the kind of relationship with this old house that you have, where it's like, oh, I can just watch the show, even though I don't have anything to do right now. It's just kind of interesting. I'd like to watch it. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to do that with, with cooking videos, various different people that do the cooking videos. And I've like kind of enjoyed some of it, but I realized that I'm only watching it because it's like, oh, you know, like I kind of like the personality, but the, none of the learnings are applicable at all. They never translate to anything. Never do my cooking videos actually help me in the kitchen because what I'm finding is they're just not generalizable at all. So with house maintenance, it's like, oh yeah, like you know how to fix the the floor. You probably have a better understanding of just in general, like how do you, you know, how do you use adhesives in the house? Right, uh, you know, yeah. how do you screw things together? And it's just cooking is so non-generalizable from what I've learned. It's like in this specific situation, you must do it this way. But in this situation, you do it this way. There's 15 different ways to put something in the oven and you need different temperatures for all of them. It's just like nobody has given me any useful heuristics about cooking that don't apply to a single food. And I've 
I find it so boring. That's <laughs> frustrating. Well, it's like frustrating and it's surprising. The thing about that I find interesting about houses too is because, well, it's like this interconnected ecosystem. So like if you're laying the floor, presumably you're doing it like over the joist or over an existing floor. And that floor, like if it's connected to the joist, like the joists are what support the house. So like you may have to consider some things about those. Mm-hmm. And like and, and like naturally you're like seeing other how these two systems are like playing together and how to do it appropriately. Which creates the generalization that you're talking about. It's like, well, I was interested in how to fix this floor, but I actually learned about the joists of a house, which are what support it. And like yeah. that's going to carry over to other topics within the house. But it sounds like this isn't happening in cooking. Like you don't learn how to like make a chicken one way. And then you always know like a little bit of how to make any type of chicken dish. Yeah, that uh, yeah. The only things that I've really taken away. So I've now read, I've read a very large cooking book, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and I've watched quite a few cooking shows. And the only things that have changed about my cooking are I now own a meat thermometer, and now I put salt in my eggs before I make scrambled eggs or omelets because <laughs> it, apparently it loosens the yolks, but. That's it. It's in especially salt, fat, acid, heat. Like this is three hundred pages of reading. What? And looking back, I got nothing out of it at all. the The whole lesson of it was like, oh, there's four elements of cooking, and you should taste your food and see what it needs. And it's like this is not applicable in any situations. Like most of my food can't be eaten raw because it's it's eggs or raw meat. I can't taste it as I cook. It's like it's gonna come out of the oven, and I have to eat it. I it just or my other food is like salad. It's like well, you know, like tasting until it tastes good and flavoring it until it tastes good is not useful advice. Like I always did that. I've just thought more and more, and I'm just very frustrated with cooking as a field. I feel that it has failed us. There's no, I don't know. I honestly got really close to ordering Huel, which my roommate drinks all the time. It's like yeah, Soylent, but I've just been there. yeah. I've I've had Huel before. Like I've ordered I it think a couple times. I might make the move. I'm just so annoyed with food right now. Very frustrating. It wastes so much time and I hate it. That's fair. No, I totally get that. Huel's great because it is such a time saver. But on the other hand, it's quite bland and can kind of get old. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> but no, it's uh, you're not alone. It's like a booming market. Like there are a lot of people who are in the Huel camp. Like they, yeah. they just don't want to fuss with the food. They don't find it. It doesn't feed their soul and they don't no. like the dishes that come out or like, I guess the reverse or like for individuals that want to cook, there's also this big market of the prepared meals where it's like, here's step-by-step instructions and we've like prepackaged everything you're going to need. So the prep is super easy or non-existent and you don't have to think at all. Like you're not doing this on your own. You're just going to follow these instructions and for the most part, it's going to work and come out good. Yeah. And that's a decent idea, but I feel that that's also kind of a failure because I don't know. It's just weird. It's, it makes me think either the market is really not serving people well or people don't want what I want. Because with the prepared food, it's like never in a million years would I spend half an hour cooking something that I can only eat once. I would, you just couldn't, there's no scenario you could construct where I would do that. What a giant waste of time. If I'm going to spend that much time, it better feed me for days. And so I could see where the prepared food you know if they sent me a thing to cook once a week that would make me eight meals that could be refrigerated that'd be great but they don't i don't understand it's just the trade-off of like the the taste of the food like i'm not sure it's easy to mass produce tasty food or what most people would consider tasty food i guess maybe that's true yeah i have these other frustrations where i find recipes where it's like there's 50 ingredients in this recipe it's like i'm going to make this ridiculous with four ingredients and i've done this a few times where i just make it up as i go and i'm like that's how i'm gonna do this because i i hate following the directions and i have found one thing that turns out well 
something called shakshuka where you're supposed to use like all these spices but it's mainly tomatoes and eggs and cheese and i cut all the ingredients out except tomatoes and eggs and cheese and there were like 15 and then i make it this way and it's fine it's like well this is way more efficient but you don't know if it could be so much better with all the spices but i don't care i don't there's no food that could be worth <laughs> 20 minutes of my time i yeah i've just i used to feel there's no food that could be worth I, 20 minutes i don't know <laughs> I tried to back off that for a while. I was like, that can't be true. And then I was like, no, that really is true. That's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> On my old rule, which I no longer follow because I would have died, is uh, if the food takes longer to prepare than to eat, it's not worth it. But that is no longer sustainable. That's a very, <laughs> very That's tight hard. window. Yes. It takes about like, what, less than 10 minutes to eat the, uh, the, the sure. dish. Yeah. So you're going to really restrict yourself. It's basically a peanut butter sandwich diet. Maybe cereal. Maybe cereal. Depends. <laughs> gotta eat slow well i wish you luck to find hoping that you find something i'm in the same place but i haven't considered like i'm just sort of just resigned myself to being like yeah well i'm gonna cook the few things i know how to cook and just accept it and go from there and but at some point i do think that i might take the same journey as you it's like it's crossed my mind. I'm like, I do want to understand what I'm doing in the kitchen and I want to be better and I want to cook nicer dishes. But maybe that's just such a fantasy because I hate, I feel similarly to you. It's like, I don't want to take, I don't want this to take an hour and the payoff be so minimal. And then I got to clean up. You always have to clean up. and It's just such a pain. And people keep recommending books to me and they're like, oh, this is the great book. This is how you learn how to cook. And I like read the description. It's like, this is a bunch of highly specific dishes or highly specific techniques that I will literally never do. I want you to teach me how to make, I, I don't even know, like rice and vegetables in giant quantities that lasts me for a month and a half that I can put in the freezer. These are the, I, my restrictions are apparently just not what these people who make books are doing. You need to be the one to bring this to the market. Like, there are so many Ethans out there crying out, and they're like, nothing serves my needs, and you could be the one to solve the problem. Yeah, recipes with five or fewer ingredients that take 45 minutes or less and can be saved for greater than one week. That's the title. <laughs> yeah, very catchy. <laughs> well, it gets your point across. But like the, Your target audience, your, but you, they will know. They will see this, and they will say, this is what I've been dying for. This is what I've needed in my life. <laughs> uh man i should have a pseudonym this this is a joke i always made in college that i was going to name my first son christopher patrick because then uh when he wrote his name in you know like the author byline it would be chris p swan crispy swan the chef <laughs> very nice <laughs> that'll be my pseudonym yeah well i don't know we'll see the, the one piece of advice i do have for all the listeners who agree with me and for you is quinoa you get a rice maker and you put quinoa in it instead of rice and it is a lot more nutritious than rice and it takes almost no effort. It tastes like absolutely nothing and uh, you could just eat a lot of it without thinking about it and be done. <laughs> oh, I'll have to try that. That's, it sounds, it sounds, you've really sold me. I, you know it's good because when all the grocery stores got raided recently when they started the lockdown, there was still quinoa there. All the rice was sold out, but there was still quinoa. Quinoa, that's, of course. <laughs> Again, you are on to something. Like, yeah. your audi- the audience needs you. This, this market <laughs> needs you to bring this out and, like, teach us your ways. <laughs> uh, I need more knowledge first. We'll see. Then Crispy will make an appearance. Okay. Well, let's wrap up here with uh, talking about the Switch. Sure. So you've been, you've been switching it up. Well, why don't you talk um, about what you've been playing? Because you've talked about these things before, too. So are you playing anything new before I launch into my long Zelda rant? Yeah. So the 
thing that has taken over our household is Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm not sure if this, Excellent. I don't think this was out when the last episode was out, so. No, we I'm talked about it myself. briefly, though. You recommended it to me. Yeah. You were like, I think you might like it. Yeah. So now we're like, I think when we first talked, maybe it was only a couple hours in, like it had just come out. And now we've like played for, I don't know, 80 plus hours. And it's it's a good game. I do have some qualms with it because of the core structure of the game is that things occur in real time. Mm. And that can be super frustrating sometimes because you will want to accomplish objectives and be able to move on to the next thing. But you will have a day or two waiting period in real time where you the game is just makes you wait. Mm. And that's annoying. Yeah. Yeah. And but to its credit, it always was advertised this way. And that's the way Animal Crossing's always been. So I can't say I was taken by surprise. Yeah. And then my other biggest qualm with it, and I this I'm only giving you like the things that I find troubling because those are the most pertinent on my mind now. The game is fun. Like you can go watch reviews and stuff and see why it's fun. It's worth it's worth checking out. But the other thing that strikes me about it is that they put into it all of this uh like co-op play where you can go to your friend's island and check it out and like see all the things they've built and see how they designed it and explore basically but you do this right like you you make and well one the (laughs) the way to get to another person's island is so obtruse it is stupid (laughs) i do not understand why nintendo doesn't understand how to make like an online user interface like with friends to be able to easily go to each other's like join each other's parties and get on each other's islands it's silly but so you get over to the, your other your friend's island and you check it out, right? And you spend like five to ten minutes walking around, exploring, and seeing all the things they did and seeing how they decorate. And then that's it. There's nothing <laughs> else. There's like nothing else to actually do together in the game. Like there's and it's like it makes there's so much potential for Animal Crossing to have mini games in it. It would be so cool if you could build a tennis court on your island and then when your friends come over, you play yeah. a tennis mini game with each other. I'm stealing that from girlfriend reviews. That was their suggestion. Oh. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> that is a brilliant. good one. Yeah. Yeah. Or like any little mini game could be pool or air hockey or whatever. It wouldn't, doesn't matter. But like the whole game is about collecting different items and then building them or putting them in your house and on your island to display. But that is the extent of it. It's all surface level. It's just, it's just displayed for people to see. It's like, well, why not take the step, the next step and make it into something that you could actually do together so then it's like, I really want to get X because I want Ethan to be able to come over to my island and we could do that together. We could play together. And it would just add another level to the gameplay that just isn't there right now. And then there's like a few other things about it that are just, yeah. But Mary still loves it a lot and is having a good time. I've mostly moved on to other games. So it's just, it's basically just a life simulator, right? Kind of, yeah. It's like a, an, a society builder you like build your island like when you get there it's all raw and you live in a tent and you like Mm. slowly build up resources and money to build houses and invite more people to the island and then clean the island up and like remove all the debris and but the the people on the island are npcs they're not actual humans okay correct right the only time you ever have humans on your island is when you invite them over gotcha to look at your things so what's the name of the guy that runs the island isn't there like uh, a guy who runs Tom Nook? Yeah. Tom, Tom Nook? Nook. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I, I'm sure you just saw me looking at my phone. I, I was trying to find this tweet that I just, I laughed out loud at. One of my college friends tweeted it and I know very little about animal crossing, but I, I was familiar with that name for some reason. I knew that it was the guy that ran the Island, but the tweet was something along the lines of like, 
Tom Nook's complete inability to impose any effective social distancing measures has undermined all of my confidence in him. (laughs) (laughs) That's Uh, really funny. Yeah, so, yeah, that's my exposure to Animal Crossing. And also, I found out that the the Bank of Animal Crossing, which I don't really understand, has lowered its interest rates in line with the World Bank. (laughs) Yes, I don't think it was, like, in line with the World Bank. They may have, like, presented it that way. I think they they had some analytics going that were, like... You know, these this player base has been super engaged, and they've built up a huge amount of wealth. And if we keep the interest rate at this, ah, uh, inequality, this level, the Gini coefficient. <laughs> yeah, so it's <laughs> it's like these people are going to run away, right, and be super wealthy, and they're going to be able to buy everything that we have in the game so quickly that it's going to like ruin their experience. So for their good, we will lower the interest rate. <laughs> I feel like it's so good to think that's like quantitative easing. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> just mirroring the banks of real life. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but no, we got like we all got to notice like hey, you have a little mailbox in the game, and it was like the Bank of Nook, and it was like we're sorry, but we're lowering interest rates and in compensation. <laughs> here's a little gift, and I don't I don't even remember what the gift was, like something stupid, but it was just a really funny experience. Like you log in one day, and they're like interest rates are cut in half, <laughs> <laughs> but mortgages are cheaper. No, they're not though, because you don't pay interest on your mortgage in the game. You only like you play zero oh. interest. The only thing it affects is the amount of money returned on a bank. You have a bank account in the game, oh. and you can either you can carry cash or you can deposit in the bank account and get what an in, unrealistic financial it. system. Yeah, nothing, I know. nothing there's like lack, a real financial I'm telling system. you, it's lacking depth in every way. <laughs> there's no mini games. There's not a real <laughs> financial simulator. I mean, what even is this? Right? No interest <laughs> on your mortgage. I hear you're in debt to a raccoon. Yes, Gray and Mike Mr. have talked Nook. about this. Yeah, you are in deep oh, debt. Okay. It's super funny. Some great memes on that. But <laughs> Girlfriend Reviews wins. I haven't watched this, but it was the uh, what is it? The Big Cat Show on Netflix. The, I, uh, oh, it, Tiger King. Tiger King. In the Tiger Big Cat King, Show. <laughs> I know, right? That's how out of the loop I am. So I haven't watched it, but like there is a clip in it where the guy's like, "This is going to ruin me financially." And that's all he says. And they splice it in at the very perfect. They're like looking at their loan balance. It's like $700,000 is what you owe or bells that you owe the the raccoon. And you're like, this is going to ruin me financially. (laughs) And I just often think back to that as I'm playing because they like charge you exorbitant amounts of bells for like every single thing in the game. So this basically feels like I imagine some people will like say it is grindy in the sense where your 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 main task is to earn generate bell revenue so that you can upgrade your house and buy new things that are ridiculously expensive so how does it compare to stardew valley it's similar to stardew valley the main a big difference in stardew is that there's a little bit more depth in some of the systems like you have a whole farming simulator kind of thing built Mm. into stardew valley and you can have more complex relationship structures in stardew valley there is many ways to earn revenue and animal crossing but i think there's greater there's a greater number of ways to do so in stardew and the biggest the biggest difference is that stardew is not in real time so if you want to sit there for 12 hours and play stardew straight you can like get through a whole year worth of time in the game and like that is just not possible in Mm. animal crossing gotcha unless you're willing to modify the system time on your switch so people call i can't they're like time shifting but you'll like bump it up a day. So like this thing is supposed to show up tomorrow. I'm not waiting. I'm just going to bump the system time up one day and log back into Animal Crossing. And then ta-da, you know, the thing that I wanted is here now and I can continue on. So some people are doing that, which is like totally cheats the the whole, like the whole purpose of the game, right? Is the, this, is things happen in real time. But 
like the most avid or the most like dedicated and like core consumers of Animal Crossing don't like this. They're like, no, I want it to go faster. Not surprised. <laughs> so I don't know what you make of that. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I will purchase that, but that's fine. No, that's fair. I would actually recommend Stardew over it. I'd say if you're interested in that type of game, go for Stardew. It's cheaper and it has some more interesting me- uh, mechanics in it hmm. than Animal okay. Crossing does. Animal Crossing is just having such a moment. It is. It is. I mean, it, like Nintendo couldn't have possibly planned it, but it came out at the perfect time. It's like no one can leave your house, and here's Animal Crossing. Yeah. Right now, as far as I can tell, everyone in the world is either playing Animal Crossing or watching the Jordan documentary at all times. Yeah, yeah. I haven't started the Jordan documentary, but I need to. I have that queued yeah, up. I. I'm not sure actually. I'll watch it. I'm sure I'll watch it eventually, I guess, but I'm not sure I really want to. But I'm sure I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where like this came from. I was like totally out of the loop. I wasn't aware this was coming. Yeah. Like, same. what what does it tell? The last is it about? It's called the Last Dance. Is it about the entire reign with the Bulls or just the last season? It's it's actually not even a Jordan doc. It's just the '98 Bulls, but it focuses relentlessly on Jordan, from what I can tell. Ten. It's ten episodes. I know yeah for on the 98 bulls yeah but they do a bunch of flashbacks to earlier seasons i've heard like all these different podcasts reviewing it so i pretty much know what happened so far um yeah i'll I'll watch it but it's called the last dance because i guess phil jackson coach at the time um made some comment that it was the last dance because uh the gm wanted to tear up the team after that season which is crazy and that's like part of the dumb yeah so they knew that it was the end of the dynasty and so they called it the last dance and that's Mm. the yeah I saw some old footage the other day, this is a tangent, on the triangle offense. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It was like a YouTube video, like, breaking down the triangle. And and maybe I'm wrong about this, but my perception was like, this would never work today. Oh, yeah? How come? That's interesting. Well, like, a big part, well, one thing I noticed is that with the Bulls, a lot of times that what would happen is, like, Rodman would make form the triangle with somebody in the post somebody in the corner and he'd be on the wing yeah he wouldn't get and like what are you doing yeah. and like even then he wasn't getting guarded but like i think even that would be an even larger liability today yeah and like maybe it only ever worked and this is i am like totally out of my element i haven't studied this at all but like perhaps it only ever worked because jordan was on the floor you can't have that large of a three-point liability even then even in the 90s running this triangle offense and have like i don't understand why and it was like over and over it's like why is it rodman always in the post forming the triangle why was he ever allowed to be on the wing to form the triangle yeah that is that would seem to it would seem to defeat the purpose so i've actually been watching some old jordan games not a lot but i just wanted to like see how he plays because i've never watched him and i want to get a sense for like why was he so good and from what i can tell so much of his game did revolve around being the guy in the high post like, that just seems like what he did. And it must have, I mean, obviously the teams won. They were unbelievable. But the spacing makes no sense. It's like your shooting guard is posting up all the time. What, who is standing everywhere else? That doesn't make any sense. And I think a big part of it, too, is related to the change in the defensive rule of having to guard your man. I can't remember what the official name of the rule is. Oh, the illegal defense I'm, and hand checking Yes, rules? the illegal, yeah. the ele- not the hand checking, more the illegal defense. The oh, hand checking okay. I have less concern about. It's the illegal defense. It's like that you, you either must be double teaming somebody or you must be on your man. Yeah, how was that enforced? I never really understood that. They would just call it. They would just be like, you know uh rodman would like run through the paint to the other side to the wing and instead of following him because he's not a threat on the wing you would just let him go and instead you're not doubling jordan you're just looking at jordan 
in like the vicinity, but you're not making an active double team, and the referee would just call it. He would just blow the whistle. Really? That's, that's illegal. I have no idea. Yeah, that's... I'll send you a video. Maybe you can include it in the link. But it's from a, I think his name's Jimmy, uh, Jimmy something on YouTube. He makes basketball videos, and he did like a 20 minute breakdown of illegal defense. Really? And huh. I found it completely fascinating. It was like totally enlightening. I was like, I had no idea that this was like such a prevalent thing. And um, he also was went on to like discuss like whether and it relates to to the uh, game of zones. It's like oh everyone's weak now and you yeah. know, the '90s was better. And he was like okay, let me. He did a random. He randomly selected three Bulls games and then like looked at every foul that Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen got in the game. He was like let's watch every foul from these three random playoff games, and they look no different. Than 2019, 2020 <laughs> basketball fouls. They're like the same thing. Yeah. And in fact, you get more because you had this illegal defense occurring. So it was just enlightening. Yeah. Whereas like, I'm not sure. I mean, I would give, I should be careful what I say, but it's just like, I wonder how Jordan's career looks in an era without illegal defense. Yeah. Right. Where you're allowed to just let Rodman do whatever Rodman wants to do. Cause he's completely a non-factor on the offensive end and just like play this type of zone padded coverage on Jordan. Yeah, I don't know. I would think that he would be less effective. Maybe I'm wrong. I would think that the team would just be constructed so differently. It's so hard to judge because that's true. I, yeah, I don't know. There's an argument both ways, right? So there's the argument that like, okay, you put Jordan in this era, the team is constructed differently, and he learns to shoot threes better. He was an okay three point shooter, from what I understand. Yes. But yeah, it's like okay, so honestly, there's no way he plays shooting guard. He he definitely plays small forward. He may play power forward in some sets in current day. Like he was really strong, especially in the second uh, three peat. And so you put him at power forward, it's like, oh, this game looks really different. He actually could probably post yeah, up that's true. and that's uh, true. run past people. But then there's also a counter argument where, you know, everybody's like, oh, Jordan would have learned to shoot threes in the modern game. Now the threes are important. And my response is always like, the three has always been worth more points. It didn't get more important. Everyone was just stupid. <laughs> like, yeah, it yeah, you're right. And it sounds so harsh, but like, no, they were actually really dumb. Like the threes were worth 150% as many points as the twos. <laughs> It's never changed. It's so dumb. And I can't get over that. I do. I definitely do hold that against Jordan where it's like, it was worth more points. It should have been most of your game. I get that like nobody figured this out, which makes no sense. But it's still like, it was worth more points. I don't understand. Right. You're right. And it also just has the added benefit. Like it is worth more points, but then it also adds a dynas- like a more dynamic nature to the to your offensive sets because you're creating more space. Which is yeah. the thing I noticed when I watched the bull, the old Bulls. Oh, it's, it's like they garbage. are so cramped. They're oh, like, because this triangle, it's like they there's zero space. I mean, it's incre- maybe it's a testament to how good Jordan was that he was still able to be so effective with such little space. But I find it all the time. I'm like, open it up. Like when you compare a modern offensive set to what you were seeing in the 90s, you're like, I don't know how anyone didn't realize that you would benefit from being able to space the floor some more. I was watching... I think it was 91. It's the year. It's the first Bulls championship. And I believe they beat the Lakers. It's whichever year they played the Lakers. I think it was the first Bulls championship, but it's magic and Michael. And the spacing in that game is, I mean, it's just, it's so bad. It's just like 10 people all hovering within five feet of the paint. And then various people would run down the middle through the paint and see if they could get a pass. And it's like, this is so predictable. All it is is the same cuts or magic posts up. That was the Lakers. And Jordan would post up from the high post and they had marginally better spacing. And it's like, this is unwatchable. Like, I can't believe people liked this sport. It doesn't even look like the same sport. It doesn't. It really doesn't look like the same sport. When you compare a modern set to what you saw in the 90s and the 80s, it's so remarkably different. 
And the how the thing that I don't think is discussed enough is how much more challenging I think it is to play defense in the modern era because there is so much space. It's insane yeah. how much ground you have to cover. It's so interesting because you watch where people stand. And this I didn't realize about illegal defense would have prevented that. But the where people stand is really interesting because you watch them just like move in these relatively small movements. It's just like a couple steps in a, in a few directions. But really, they always have to be within two steps of the three-point line at all times. And it yeah, it is very interesting, I think, to watch the shapes that the defense moves in. Yes. Yeah. So I have to th- I think that illegal defense becoming a non-factor. And it was funny, too, because like all of the... Um, you know, the old guard of the NBA at the time, because I think it changed in 2001 is when it happened. And Michael Jordan said it was a bad, it was bad. He was like totally against it. And so was like every other um, like older NBA player. He was, I think the quote, you'll have to watch a video, but there's like a quote and it was, it was like, well, I, I think it was from Jordan. It was like, a legal defense allows stars to shine the brightest is what he said. He's like having a legal defense as a rule allows your stars to shine the brightest. And it was like, so it means it is, it's proving the point that like you have non-factors yeah. on the, on the offensive end that have to have somebody's attention because you are mandating it. And if they, if they were not, then more attention could be put on you and, and make you less effective. Which means that as a team, like you are compositionally weaker. And if you didn't mandate the fact that I have to be near this person to guard them or double teaming you completely, then you wouldn't be as effective as you are. Yeah. No, that's that's very interesting. I should watch more of those games. I've been throwing on an old NBA game in the background while I do stuff recently, and I'll just like glance up at it periodically. I like to get a feel for the games of these players. Magic's game is not what I thought it was. It's yeah. It's not as fun as I thought it would be, I guess, but I am watching like the end of his career magic so maybe that's an unfair unfair benchmark well i don't it's very interesting stuff i'll send you that youtube link you yeah check it out yeah long tangent yes all right well i guess because we did we did mention it so i should talk a little bit about what i've been doing on switch and then we can wrap up so yeah so i finally bought zelda finally caved uh it's excellent it's really good yes and yeah yeah it's so good so and good it's like it's just a really ideal game for me in a few ways because it's a great thing to listen to a podcast while doing. Very rarely is there dialogue or anything you need to read. And so you can just like cruise around and occasionally get chased by bad guys and just like look at your map to see where you're going. And it's like it's a lot of very satisfying things you do. And then you do some puzzles, but they don't require too much attention. And so I catch up on podcasts and play and yeah, it's been great. The world is so impressive. It's just really, really well designed. There's so many different environments in the game, which I never expected. Every area has its own vibe. Yeah, You're right. Very well yeah. done. And it's so cool, too, that first shot, that introductory shot, you come out of the tomb mm-hmm. and you come out over the ridge and you just see it does that like panoramic shot of the whole land. And it's like anywhere, everything you see, you can get to. Yeah. Every single thing on this map, you can get to and explore. That is so. That is seldom the the case with most video games and it's something i've really appreciated with zelda it's like this entire thing this entire uh uh, map is your playground and anywhere anywhere you can see through your like binocular or whatever you can get to it and you can explore it and i still i i said it the last time i think but i love it so much there's no wrong way any way you go is the right way in zelda it's fantastic yeah, that I do really enjoy that. And I like that you can accomplish things without having to fight all the time. I really appreciate that, that you can like sort of move with stealth or figure out ways to get around the enemies and then get to the shrines and jump the towers and stuff. And a lot of the 
especially early on when you're not very strong it seems like a lot of the game is figuring out ways to get around the enemies yes yeah you'd like try to be clever and there's also a lot of, of fun game mechanics with the dynamic systems and how they play together that's i really really appreciate that how you can use the different elements together and how you get those like different magical ruins so you have like some bombs and some other effects and if you (laughs) you can go down a deep youtube rabbit hole of just seeing how people try to play with these systems to accomplish like really funny interesting tasks like (laughs) uh yeah yeah just really some people have taken it to because like everything interacts with everything else you know you take your torch and you're like i need light or like i need to go to a cold area so i need some warmth and you just dip it in the fire and it actually catches on fire yeah that is so cool yeah no it's, it's just the opposite of uh pokemon shield in every way <laughs> a well thought out well-designed game great graphics great story not turn-based yeah 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 so i've been super pleased with zelda but i have a tiny portion of the game through yeah i'm, I'm gonna dive back in as now that i have some free time i think as a my my veg out time i'm gonna try to finish the game I, i'm not sure exactly how far i am um, but I want to, you know, finish all the, all the different, uh, I don't remember what they call them, the ancient ruins, like the different animal things. Oh yeah. I haven't done any of those yet. Yeah. Those are fun. They're really fun. They like, they take the puzzle and they kick it up a notch for like just a, sh- you know, for that section Oh, because it's like, a, I don't know, it's meant to be a little more challenging of a section. Uh, so I need to complete a few more of those and then I can go fight Ganon and mm. then that will be the game. Oh, you're pretty far. Okay. Yeah. I'm just visiting all the shrines and towers right now. Yeah. I mean, that's great. There, like, there is no wrong way yeah. to go. No, it is really fun. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's Zelda and, uh, Overcooked. I've also been playing a lot and Overcooked for people that don't know is, um, uh, a collaborative game where you cook together. Which, you know, I've said a lot of complimentary things about cooking so far this episode. So you can imagine I would love this game. But I actually do really <laughs> like the game. And it's super frantic. And it's uh, it both requires coordination, like the skills of video games in general, of like moving your person in a certain way and like having a sense of how they're moving and like the game physics engine and stuff. But also it requires a lot of, of planning and delegation, I guess is the word. You have to think about who does what and how you do it because you're working together and you have access to different ingredients and different uh, ways to cook things. And so uh, we have some neighbors that we're friends with. And so the four of us have my roommate, me and our neighbors have been like a quarantine pod and we've been playing uh, Overcook the whole way through the game. We finally finished all the core game and we're moving on to uh, some of the expansion packs. But it's been, it's been really, really fun. And it's also great because you get to this point, especially especially when you're like friends but like not super close friends you're like afraid to yell at each other but you totally do yell at each other during the game you're like drop it get out of the way get out of the way now yes you can't help (laughs) it It overcook pushes you past your limit every time i don't know how it gets the tension so high but it really does so it's just make the little level designs like i've only seen i don't know 10 percent of the game but they push the level designs in ways that I didn't anticipate. Like there's a level design I recall vividly where you're on trucks that move and then can separate. And you're and like up to this point, like your kitchen, you may have been like like regulated to only a certain part of the kitchen, but you always were like able to get to the other side and hand things off. Mm-hmm. And then it like totally breaks that mechanic. It's like, nope, actually, you not only are, do you have separate systems, right? But we will we will we will separate them such that you cannot work together for short periods of time and you still have to figure out how to be productive. Yeah. 
It really makes you think, yeah. Have you so have you played it or just watched it? I've played it. Okay. It's a challenging game. It's it a is really very challenging. challenging game. We've three starred every level on the the main area, including wow. the final one. Yeah, it took took a lot of work, but now the expansion packs. Well, there you go. That's awesome. That's really cool. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I've heard a lot of great things. I have the I have the copy of it's the first one. I have the first copy. So maybe some point in the future I'll pick it back up and try it again. The first one is what we were playing as well. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Cool. Well, I'm glad you're getting a lot of good use out of your Switch. Oh, so much. Yeah. One thing I really like about the Switch is uh, the Joy-Cons. You can... I know most people seem to prefer having them in like a controller setup where you like slide them into a, a casing and use them like that. But actually, I have a lot of wrist and hand pain. Um, mainly video games and typing make it worse. But with the Joy-Cons, I can just like leave my hands loose in, you know, at my sides and play without lifting them up and holding them together. Because it's the, it seems to be like bending my wrists outward and tensing my hands that hurts everything. And so by allowing them to be separate, I can just hold them at my sides and play separately. And it's it's so much better than using using a traditional controller. Interesting. I've not heard that from from anybody, but I can see that being a benefit. I, I prefer the Pro Controller. That's the route that I normally take with it, unless I'm in handheld mode. Um, but I do I hadn't considered that, and I can see that being really useful. Sometimes my hands and wrists as well will flare up, and I'll experience pain. So perhaps next time I am experiencing that, I'll try that and see what if it works for me. It's kind of nice to switch back and forth, I think. The Pro Controller feels better and is easier to control, but that i can't do it for a long time what i've realized is i don't really notice it when i'm playing i notice it the next morning i have a lot of wrist and hand pain and actually it, it's difficult to do yoga anything where i like uh push on my wrists really hard that's where i feel it a lot so yeah i've yeah. learned the pattern well all right well i think that concludes our our chat yeah call it a day that was a long one yeah it was good